Welcome to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast, where your hosts, Dr. Peter Bolden and Dr. Craig Spodak, help you go next level with your practice, leveraging the four pillars that make a practice bulletproof. Vision, building a dream team, marketing ninja, and financial freedom. Now, let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. Today, I am, I am podcasting live from my, my home office. Craig is, uh, is coming at us live from California. And Reese, looks like you're in your boring office, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, last time, we had, a, we had an awesome conversation with you, Reese, and we really wanted to get into the next, next episode or level two conversation of some stuff um, because we just kept talking and, and going down rabbit holes on the last one, which was awesome because I, I got several comments from people of how valuable that podcast was. So, um, so tonight, it's, it's Craig's fervent desire to really unpack more of the retirement and the question before we hit record for Reese was, you know, why, why are dentists having this pervasive problem with not being able to retire on time and on plan? And so few dentists uh, just can do it according to schedule. And so Reese, we want to, we want to kind of go over that with you. And I think I asked you even before I hit record, like, do you have the statistics of, of the percentage of, of us who can, can retire um, or can't retire at certain dates? So anyway, buddy, back, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming on again. And, um, and if you want, you can jump right into that, into that statistic. All right, Peter, thanks so much for the intro. And thanks to Craig for taking time out of his uh, vacation uh, to be a part of this too. You always have some good insights as well. And I, I think, um, I think the one thing, if we were to answer the question, there's only a few data points that really we can track that show, where dentists are retiring, um, at what points and when they're choosing to retire. Um, in fairness, uh, to the statistic I'm about to share with you, um, this, this most recent sample, there's two main samples done from the American Dental Association. One of them you can find on their website right now. And it just says the average retirement date for dentists nationally. This is uh, GPs and specialists. It has it at age 69. So the average GP and specialist combined is the average retirement date is 69. What we don't know, um, based on the way these questions are framed, sometimes people are choosing to work later and they're not reporting it the same way as people who are uh, maybe feeling desperate, like they have to retire at 69. So I get a lot of questions like, well, that doesn't mean dentists are retiring at 69 because they have to, they're just choosing to work longer. And we just love our professions. We love clinical. We, we want to have an impact. And, and I don't want to discount that because I think there's some truth. Some dentists really love it, but I'm coming from a side of, I post polls on my Facebook group and um, on a lot of Facebook groups that you guys are a part of quite often. And you guys have probably seen some of these questions. Like if you could retire at 55 and spend more money, uh, or if you could retire at 55 and spend a little less, be a little more frugal, or retire at 65 um, but spend a lot more and live a better lifestyle, which one would you pick? Would you pick retiring earlier or would you pick retiring later, right? If it meant that you could spend a little more and take a few more vacations. And like hands down, like every survey I've ever done has had 
people say 55 and I'll just spend a little less. Like I want to retire early. I want to get out of this. I don't want to be doing this any longer. I want to get out of clinical. Like, I don't know that that's representative of the whole dental population, but of people on Facebook that are dentists, that's the sample. And I see it all the time. So I give, I don't want to, I don't, I think that dentists are retiring at 69 on average because that's literally the point at which they believe it's prudent for them to retire. That's the point. They feel like they can finally do it and not risk uh, jeopardizing their lifestyle. And that's six years later than the average American. It's six years later than the average 50,000 a year wage earner. Um, is they're six years later. So, you know, there's a difference. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. There's a difference. you know, I just got back honestly from uh, the Tony Robbins business mastery. It was uh, five days out in Vegas and you know, there, there was retirement came up and there's a difference between obviously having to work and wanting to work. And you're right. That statistic of 69, like that's a cool thing to be in, right? Because maybe they're just wanting to, to keep working. And I think we need to peel out that and say like, when do you see dentists finding financial stability in terms of the retirement plan? Um, So I guess just to clarify that though, I believe that most dentists retire when they can, when they believe they can, they don't Mm -hmm. wait longer. Like in my experience, I I don't, if I say like you have plenty of money right now, you are done. If I give them that confidence, they don't keep working. Okay, they sell. They sell. How many? How many of them are banking on the the sale of the practice to be the final push? Well, the way I calculate it is, you want to you want to take someone's total net worth, like whatever mm-hmm. someone is worth across real estate equity and practice equity, uh, retirement accounts, and cash and other investments. You take all of that and th- that's how you calculate whether you're ready to retire. So you shouldn't be banking on the sale of the practice. You should be always using the equity in the practice as a way to value uh, where you're at from a total wealth perspective. And so usually once someone gets to the point to where they're, they're at a 30 to 30, 30 to 35 times what they spend in a year in total wealth, um, that's getting to a point to where work is optional. All right, wait, wait, let's, un- let's unpack that one just a second. So let's say a dentist makes, let's just make, make it easy numbers, right? So it's well, he spends, a dentist spends 200 grand a year. Okay. Let's yeah. call it, okay. 200 grand a year, right? Yep. So you're saying it should be that number in net worth should be 30 S- times 200. Yeah. Six to 7 million then. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I would say, like that's the point of when I'm comfortable starting to have the conversation. If you have, if you're spending two hundred thousand a year and you are worth four million, it's not, it's not time yet unless you're seventy plus. If you're seventy plus. So, so Reese, where does that thirty to thirty-five math come in? At what age is that? Any age. Any age. Um, and also, so, you have an interesting thing that I was talking to you about offline, maybe a couple of weeks ago you said that you like to not deplete the principal. So I don't know if this, what term this is, but I, I would imagine that, you know, if you're 60 years old and you had $10 million that you'd 
run the financial algorithm to show what would it be like to be broke at 100 or yeah. whatever, 105. You don't run the math that way, correct? Well, um, I'll show you. I'll show you guys one thing really quick. Instead of showing you my, can you guys see my screen right now? I can. Yeah. Yeah. So here's my screen, and I'll show you one chart on here that'll help us. This screen right here. Um, if you, I came up with this term called a, a. I came up with a periodic table of financial elements, and one of them is this thing called total term. It's a TT score. And this TT score basically takes your someone's total net worth and it divides it by your annual personal spending. So in the case, the example we just used, if someone, um, if someone uh, had a $6 million net worth and they spent 200 grand a year, they would be a 30 TT score. Okay, that'd be a 30 TT score. Um, these scores right here tell us how wealthy someone really is, all right? Because at a 30 TT score, all that has to happen is that your wealth has to grow at 3.3% or more, and you'll never run out of money. You'll, you'll never tap your principal if you just grow it at 3.3% if you're at a 30. If you're at a 20, we've got to grow it at 5%. And if you're at 40, we only have to grow it at 2.5% in order to maintain your principal. All right. For a lot of people, they're, they want to deplete their principal. They want to spend money down and not pass anything on. That's a very different conversation, and it's a fine one to have. Um, you, don't have to, you don't have to get to a point to where you never deplete your principal, but I think it's important to know that for most people, they're not, most people aren't comfortable. Um, they're not comfortable retiring with confidence until they know that they're going to maintain most of their principal, if not all of it. So I like to make sure people realize that a lot of the financial planning that they're doing with their financial advisor, a lot of it's projecting out a lot of assumptions about how they're going to spend their money down and, and die with nothing. But that that's such a scary, like speculative way to plan for me. Like, what if they live longer? What if inflation's higher than it should be? Like, what if investment returns are lower? I prefer the chart I just showed you that is just a lot more pragmatic in my mind. It no, just, I love that. I, that's the first I've seen something like that. I love that. So yeah, it's totally different. It's totally different. But for people like listening, you know, I would just say, if you are okay spending down your money, then accumulating to 20 times your spending is probably not, um, it's not the worst, right? I would call that a very basic retirement. If you want to be financially independent, we can't have that conversation until your total wealth is at least 30 times what you spend in a year. And you've got to be really conservative about what you spend. You can't just like lowball the number. Because if you right. lowball the number by like two grand a month, you're going to be off by like a million dollars of net worth that you need. I mean, you can't, you can't lowball it without serious consequences. That's why people retire when they're 70 plus because they've never done the math in a real, real predictable way that gives them confidence so that they can, they can stop working earlier. Um, and a lot of them have pretty high lifestyles and they're worried about cutting back from those. Yeah. That's, that's the key. Yeah. By the way, that's the total key because there's guys that make, you know, 80 grand a year and they're millionaires by the time they're 60 you know, or they have several million in the bank by the time they're 60. Yeah. So it's, it's really, I mean, we, we can't, 
hit that message hard enough that it's really about what you spend. And, and I think the reason why dentists, I mean, this is just my thought process recent and Peter, I'm happy for you guys to poke holes in this, but we have a profession where by and large, we make more money every year as we mature into our careers. So if you're making, you know, let's say five to 10 or 15% more every year, that's cool. But if you're spending eight to 30% more per year, it's a non-sustainable equation. You're going to wind up running out of gas at a certain point. Totally. And I, I mean, and, and doctors are the ones that can walk into any, you know, bank and get a mortgage for whatever that, I mean, I get emails every day of a hundred percent financing up to $3 million or $2 million. I had that before when I was graduating school, I remember 105% for practice loans, 105% LTVs, basically like paying you to take on debt. So it's, um, it's easy to see how things can add up pretty. So pretty Reese, how do, how do we screw this up in terms of the, you know, if this is such a simple formula, so to speak, like how, how are so few, how are we screwing it up? Well, I don't think, I, I think for the most part, um, I don't, I don't want to like keep derailing you guys on this, but sharing my screen will help a ton. This is a, the reason that a lot of people screwed this up, like you're saying, Peter, mm -hmm. is they don't really have a clear picture of exactly how their net worth is growing and they just assume good things are happening, but they don't really know, so they won't make any changes. This is a really, really simple, um, let me give you, well, well, before I show you this cool report right here, I'll show you one other one. This right here is what, what's called a personal net worth statement. A lot of people have probably seen this before. It just shows you like how much your assets and liabilities are, right? Um, and what your net worth is. Um, can you guys see that? Yeah. So on the left, you see all these assets, and on the right, you see liabilities. It's just a really simple uh, thing. We've got practice accounts and personal accounts. You'll notice I'm combining the business and the personal assets. You can see I've got the practice value, Jim Javitis Dental right here. I've got the personal primary residence. But I've also got the building. Um, this is just an average kind of single location a uh, single practice with some building debt and everything. Yep. That's a snapshot in time of someone's personal net worth, but that should be tracked every, that should be being updated like every day, just automatically using technology. It's really easy. And then what I like to do is I prepare um, what's called a progress report. And this progress report tracks people's motion uh, over time and make sure we're being honest about whether we're making real net worth progress or if we're just getting busier. So you can see here's July uh, and here we're at 5.4 million. And I want to make sure that I can see a positive net worth growth each th every three months. And I want to know in what categories that's coming from. Is it coming from cash? Is it coming from after-tax investments? Is it coming from 401ks and pre-tax investments? Is it coming from real estate in the practice? Is it coming from business valuation? Or is it coming from personal real estate? Or how much of it's debt reduction in different categories versus asset growth? Um, most dentists, if they just had these two reports given to them, a personal financial statement, and they had a quarterly progress report that they're looking at every three months, they would start making adjustments because yeah. they would just know, like, crap, I keep doing the same thing. I'm like, I'm adding practices, I'm levering them up, I'm depleting my cash, and then I'm not growing them enough to make up for all the debt I'm bringing on and my net worth is going down. And I got to stop doing that until I 
Well, I've got to grow the asset more, right? Well, that's that's Pearson's law, by the way. Just knowing your numbers and looking at them yeah. changes the behavior. Like if you have a scale in your bathroom, you will tend to lose weight even if you don't intend to. Yeah, Which I totally correct, agree. You know, just by seeing your weight, you know, so most dentists would never see that or maybe see that once every couple of years if they went to buy something. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah what you track yeah, increases. I find that like most people will that's the starting point just knowing your numbers that's my that was my initial point there's a few tactical things that will help big time uh, we can talk about those next but i just wanted to make that overarching point if you don't see your numbers regularly of exactly how your net worth is progressing i, I just know that it won't it, it's not even well, start. yeah and how do you know where the bullseye if you're not getting you know if you're not getting a roadmap how do you know where the roads are right and and so you know, I do that personally, like you were saying, just on my own own account, but it's not as good looking as what you provide well, for your see, clients. If you're, the thing is, I've found that a lot of people are doing it in some form. They're like grasping for straws to like just figure this thing out and they make their own spreadsheets. They're like documenting it. And then what happens is they work with this financial advisor who's like, totally on a different page, right? You're just bringing them something that he's selling them, like a, a, an insurance policy, a 401k, or some kind of product. And they're like, I need a plan. I need, I need you to track this, help me organize it, help me move in the right direction. But they're not getting um, the right collaboration from their financial advisor. They're getting product-specific sales or advice on investing money but like it's bigger picture than that i mean it well also your 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 financial advisor most likely wouldn't be looking that deep into your quickbooks to see that you have a two hundred thousand dollar loan at six percent so he'll put you in an investment that might be at four percent yeah you should you know, it might be more efficient to pay that debt down you're right and if it if they're doing a good job like debt has to be if you're an actual financial advisor you would assume they would spend as much time on the debt as they do the equity I mean, they've got to think about that at least, I mean, for debt, like, you know, um, and so the problem is the only people that think about the debt are the lenders, right? And so I think um, one, one thing I was just going to share real quick that'll help, I think people uh, understand this a bit more. We were talking a little bit about spending um, earlier. Um, I don't want to hit on this too much, but I think the context that you were saying, Craig, of like people are spending, um, they don't really, they they spending too much generally and that causes that retirement number to be higher. I think to give people context, like it's important that we, we try to measure spending as a percentage of your total income. Like spending isn't just a raw number, like someone spends eight grand a month, someone spends 10 grand a month. Like this particular case, the person is spending uh, 160,000 a year, right? And that happens to be 31% of their income because their income is 500,000. So as a percentage of income, that's actually not bad. Like 30% of gross income is fine. If you're making 700 or you're making a million or you're making 200, I don't care. 30% is a pretty good uh, spending number as a percentage. Wait, Reese, I have a quick question. 30% of your Adjusted gross, so pre-tax. Of, of your total gross income. Adjusted gross okay. sometimes doesn't have the full picture. You have to add back the depreciation and the amortization that's kind of fake because those are real cash flow numbers you got. So your, your income calculation is 
adjusted gross plus add back any depreciation or amortization. That's your true income. But that's that's the, interesting. That's cool. That's that the right cool. way to look at it. Is take a percentage because if you're spending thirty percent or lower, then what'll happen is your savings rate, what you can save, will actually be. A, it'll be this is a savings rate chart. It'll be twenty percent or more. This person's saving twenty six percent of their income, and it's it's climbing because their spending is less than it's thirty percent. So if you're spending thirty, you can save about twenty, and that's great because the other half is going to go to debt and taxes most likely, right? So that's kind of the way to think about cash flow. Um, just from an income perspective, I think that's that's important to, to think about. Anyway. It, it, do you give all these, I, I wish, for those of you who are just listening, you're missing some of the uh, the eye candy that Reese is putting up on the screen. Is this the stuff you give to all your clients? Um, yeah, every month um, in our practice, we just have a, a, a topic that we cover. And that's one of our 12 kind of main topics. It's called Elements. And this periodic table that you can see right here, we just cover one of those 12 um, every month and we rotate through it every year. And we just benchmark, like you can, t you can see from the savings number right here, someone's saving 26% of income. You can see the low, mid and high uh, savings rate groupings for a person that earns what this person earns. So this is- Hey, hey Reese, quick question. Uh, amongst the clients you have, the dental clients you have, what's the average savings percentage that, that you about, see? It's about right here with this, it's about 21 and a half right now, the midpoint, just, just over 21% of gross. So can that, can, and is, can debt abatement qualify as quote unquote savings since it's raising your net worth? That's a great question, man. Um, the way I calculate, we calculate debt rate, see, we calculate, your debt, your debt is the mandatory minimums you have to pay. That's your debt rate, all right? But your savings rate is four categories of items, which are your pre-tax savings, your after-tax savings, your education savings, and your extra debt payments. Mm -hmm. So if you're making extra debt payments, that counts towards savings rate. Your Wait, debt education savings like 504 and those cap those pre-college thing, this yeah, pre-college thing. Interesting. Okay. Got it. I wouldn't and, have thought that would be, why would that would consider Yeah. Because yeah, why we, does it, it doesn't I, affect I your retirement. To, I don't want to, um, like I have a lot of cases where people end up accumulating a lot of money inside of 529 plans and the kids don't unfortunately ever see the money. So yeah, you can't, there's penalties to use that money for other things. Correct. Well, I'm just saying that the adult can take the money out of the 529 plan at any point that they need to, right? And and use it. There is a penalty, but it's only 10% of the growth. So, for me, I don't want to I don't want to penalize someone's savings rate because this this is not necessarily telling me that they're going to be great for retirement, right? This is just telling me the measure of free cash flow that they have. Like it just tells me like how flexible is their lifestyle. It tells me how much money they really have because it could be piling up in the bank and we still measure that um, change in the change in cash year over year still adds to their savings rate. And so I just measure debt rate as the mandatory minimum savings rate is where people get 
extra debt payments uh, added to that. And I just want to know that you have at least 20 to 25% of free cash flow that if we had to stop contributing to things, we could. Like, because in some cases, as you guys know, if you go to expand or out of location or you wanted to get, uh, take a pretty entrepreneurial move, you might have to stop your savings for six months or a year. And we really, we have to know how much flexibility someone has. If you have, Z, if you have a 5% savings rate or a 10% savings rate and a 40% debt rate, like we have no ability to make uh, changes like this. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Craig Spodak from the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast, and I am super fired up to talk to you guys about our summit happening October 12th and 13th at the beautiful St. Regis Hotel in Atlanta. This is the opportunity to learn everything we've accumulated over the last 20 years of dentistry and business management. We're leaving it all on the table. There's nothing to sign up for afterwards. This is just two days of intense learning and mastermind sessions. We strongly encourage you to bring someone in your office that's a stakeholder, not just an employee, but someone that's actually following you and treats your business as their own. Because if you come back from this thing all fired up and you don't have your first follower or someone to help implement, it's gonna be very difficult. So once again, October 12th and 13th at the beautiful St. Regis Hotel in Atlanta. Registration is filling up very, very quickly and the tickets are almost sold out. So go to Bullet bulletproofdentalpractice.com forward slash summit and reserve your spot today. See you soon, people. And it all depends on what life's what point in your life you're at too, right? Like, you yeah, know, if you're, if you're well, 30, if you're a 30 year old dentist, you can take bigger bigger bites for the upside down the road, right? Versus. Well, yeah, you have more, reco- you have more recovery, more recovery time. time. But, and that's but look the at biggest you, luxury. Look, but Pete, look at you as well. I mean, you're not socking away money into like a retirement account, but you're buying commercial income producing property for cash. So that's, that's savings as well. That where does that fit in Reese? Right. Yes. Now, now for Peter, in your case, you see this, you see my screen right now. Um, it's got the whole periodic table. Yep. This is just our website. If you just go to uh, services and hit elements right here, you mm-hmm. can just scroll down to this table and read about each element and whatever. Peter, in your case, let's say you're going to, let's say right now your savings rate is 25 to 30%, but every discretionary penny you had went to make extra debt payments to build up your real estate which is this bottom row, okay? This, we talked about how much wealth do I need to make optional, which is your total term at the beginning. Now we're gonna talk about, do I have the right mix of assets? This, uh, this bottom row shows me how much do you have in real estate, how much do you have in practice equity, how much do you have in retirement accounts, and how much do you have liquid? And if you were at a 30 TT score, but you had a 25 TT in real estate, or a 25, excuse me, RT, meaning 25 of your 30 score was in real estate, you know, we might have a conversation about how you're, we, we have to look at your cap rates. We've got to make sure you're getting the right yields off of those properties because we don't have a lot of liquidity and we're highly dependent on those properties for our retirement income, which is not bad. I mean, you could have a 30 TT score and 
all of it can be in real estate and you're still financially independent as long as we got good cap rates on our building. We don't have to have it all liquid. Um, you could have a 30 TT score in your practice equity. And as long as we're getting 15 or 20% bottom line margin off all our locations, we're going to be fine with a 30 uh, TT score that is all in what we call TT right here, practice equity. Um, you could have it all in qualified, which is 401k, or you could have it all liquid. The, the easiest place is to have a 30 TT score in liquid assets just sitting there. That's the most like control, the least risky position to be in. And the more you have of these other areas, you know, you have to kind of, you, you got to decide if you're really, if you have the right mix of assets, if you're really, if your net worth is diversified properly across all of these compartments. And so well, that's any any illiquid asset, like if you're, if you have properties, it's all about what time you want to sell it. And, uh, everything has, you know, yeah. troughs and valleys, Yeah, you can't take five grand out of a building real quick to just buy yeah. some time. I mean, yeah. you, you got to refinance it. You got to wait for the market to be at a good opportunity, which today would be, but in 09 and 2010, if you had it all there, it sucks. So I like just talking about, What's your total term score currently? How is that changing? And then how's the mix of assets that you have right now? Where is it sitting between these four categories? You know, it's funny though. I love how, and that maybe this is the obvious that I just didn't get, but like, I like how the focus is on the net worth, right? Versus like just focusing on, oh shit, what's my retirement account look like or whatever. Like you're taking, I like, and maybe again, maybe that's the obvious. Maybe everyone's maybe everyone besides me was focusing on like No, you're you know. not. You're you're right, Peter. I mean, everyone is focused on their account. Mm -hmm. Their 401k, their brokerage account. It's like that's not a holistic view of what you're doing. And and it 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 discounts psychologically, it discounts a lot of the hard work that people go into to build up real estate assets or build up practice equity. It makes you feel not as wealthy because you're not as liquid, but mm -hmm. you have you might have a bigger net worth than anyone else who's got more liquidity than you. I know in my own life, that's the trade-off I had to make. I could have been hyper liquid and grown my net worth slower, or I could have been, you know, gone through a little bit of fluctuation on liquidity, but have a big, what I call PT score, RT score. We have a big asset, but it's not liquid. And it, that's what it takes. You've got to give up liquidity to have these other assets, I, the, I just think that's an important point you're making. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So any, any we're gonna try and, I'm gonna, again, try and cap this, uh, not go as long, we, we kept you for an hour last time, so I wanna cap you, but is there anything, anything else that you see that like, you see people screwing up when it comes to being able to retire on time? When I say people, I mean dentists, obviously. Um, in my experience, I would just say it's, it has a lot of it has to do with the order in which they accumulate these bottom four types of assets, the liquid, okay. the qualified, the practice equity, and the real estate that people often pursue um, the assets that they're accumulating in the wrong order. I, I find that they go, they'll start a 401k like way too early in their career at the expense of getting practice ownership right gotcha. at a meaningful level or or they'll the, the the wrong order typically is i can show i can show you on a on a chart that i've got but the bottom line is that real estate in my experience should come a little bit later and the focus real early should be the practice equity 
And the practice equity should then be followed by liquidity and then the qualified assets and then a focus on real estate accumulation. That's so interesting. That's kind of counter to what I think Pete and I believe. <laughs> it's exactly because, the opposite of what I did. <laughs> I'm, well, it's also, I just think that historically, you know, we're all lured in by the fact that most people become super wealthy or uber wealthy through With real, real estate. estate. Yeah. But it's and very local and time independent. Is like, real estate's the only thing though that, it's the only asset that no matter where you buy it along the spectrum, like it is cash intensive initially, like it to get 10% down on a property that you're not occupying. If you're a dentist, it's a different beast because B of A will lend you maybe hundred percent LTV on the property and maybe you don't have to deploy capital. I'm talking about if you're going to build equity in real estate, buy the asset early, but don't build equity in it early because if you build equity in it early, it takes away from your ability to add new locations, invest in other less uh, liquid assets or more there liquid. You go. Either way, you just don't have the cash if you're trying to, and if you've already bought the asset, you're going to get the appreciation anyway. So just don't, don't obsess over paying down that asset because it comes at a fixed cost and the financing is bearing that cost. Just keep your liquidity, build your practice equity, add private business ownership, add uh, stock market equity. I mean, add, add energy, add um, any appreciating asset that you have to buy early on to get that long-term appreciation, but don't pay down debt that at any point in time is the same. It's the same process. I'm not saying don't buy the asset. I'm just saying don't build the equity in that asset as early. Because, because it's the arbitrage of money, so to speak, meaning pain. Is that what you're saying? Like the time, maybe in your case or Craig's case, you haven't felt the pain of this, but let's take an average GP. Let's say someone making in the $300,000 range and they have a choice of paying off one building or adding a second location. I see. And that's the choice they have, right? It's a real choice. And a lot of times they'll make the choice to, build equity in the building they own as opposed to adding that second location because they need the liquidity to have the confidence to build that. Like it, you're not going to open a second location without confidence that you're going to be okay. You need a few hundred thousand dollars to feel like I can do that and get through it and make it happen. And, and so the bigger you get, the less consequential that trade-off becomes, but the smaller that you are, like that trade-off's a real game changer. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's also that most, you know, I call it the Archie Bunker mentality, you know, like middle America or, 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 you know, that unsophisticated financial mentality is like debt, just to be debt averse. And most people don't recognize that there is a good debt and a bad debt. People equate all debt as credit card debt, this compounding interest that you can't get out of. But it, like to what Peter was saying, and I don't want that to go unnoticed, is the arbitrage, if you're, if you're at a 4% rate of return, you know, or 4% interest rate rather, and your practice is growing or the building is growing, then, you know, there, there's an arbitrage on those two numbers and it's not necessarily behooves, behooving you to just plunk the cash. Yeah. Down. Like you if can't, you expand, you can out. you make better than 4% on your money? Right. I mean, that's really the, the question. And so, but again, it has, to, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot going on with that question right there. Just like you alluded to Reese is what's that person's personal comfort, you know, what fills what makes them happy, where do they feel safe, you know, and some people just have different risk tolerances and there's no formulaic thing. I mean, your formulas right. look pretty slick, but, but there's no formula that, per se to say that, that makes but, someone feel energized but towards their Peter. There's no better required savings plan than to make your debt payment on your, your 
your uh, business real estate. I mean, it's a forced savings account. Mm -hmm. You can elect to not maximally contribute to your 401k, but you can't elect not to make that uh, that payment True. to your to your business uh, property. Yeah. Well, and I, I just just to kind of like restate that, like this this is the chart I was going to show, which is building it in building the equity in these assets in the right order to me is important. So I've got practice, then liquidity, then retirement, then real estate equity. That doesn't mean I'm going to not buy real estate early on. It just means these should be the, this should be the focus of your kind of general trajectory as an entrepreneur is like build the business asset first, then get a little bit more liquid so that I can have confidence that I'm heading in the right direction. Then take advantage of the tax deductions, that I can get through my qualified retirement accounts and then pay off the real estate. Just yeah. pay it off at the latter end of the cycle. It doesn't mean that you buy it at the end. Okay. It's just where you're going to build equity um, during your career. So, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I thought you were saying like when you acquire Yeah, that does make, that does clarify it too. Okay. Um, that's, that's a big mistake. The, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a critical one. And, this, this last point, and then we'll let everyone wrap up, is I think the reason you want to build the practice investment early, the reason I say, hey, go build the practice at the beginning, is because your portfolio here, the green line, like if you have a practice investment that kicks off, call it a million dollars in liquidity at the point you want to start beginning withdrawals, look how much longer you have before you have to start pulling money from your portfolio. Like when you sell your practice, you're not going to just invest that money in the stock market. I mean, in most cases, you have like a very short time horizon and you're going you're gonna to have a bunch of cash right then when you, when you sell the practice. And that's the money you should typically spend first and let your other portfolio investments grow as long as possible before you withdraw them. But, but a lot of people don't calculate the value of their practice in how long they're going to be able to wait to pull the rest of their money out. So they go, they invest their portfolio really conservatively because they're saying, well, I'm going to get that at 55 or 57 or 60, or in the case of the average dentist, 69. But in reality, you probably shouldn't touch your actual liquid retirement portfolio until your late seventies. And you should spend your practice equity right out of the gate and invest your money in your fifties. Like you're not going to touch it till you're 70. So you can maximize the return that you're going to get from that longer holding period. But again, to calculate all this, you, you have to have an accurate net worth and a, and a good um, personal financial statement. So you can kind of make sure, okay, I spend 200 grand a year and I've got 1.2 million in practice equity. That's going to buy me like seven years or six years, uh, you know, in, in liquidity. So I can invest my money that much longer and too many people don't invest their money with the right time horizon in place because they're not calculating the liquidity event from their practice as something that's going to buy them more time. And they're, they're too conservative with their, yeah. their portfolios. So they only make five or 6% instead of, you know, nine to 11%. And also like it, it goes without mentioning that if your practice actually nets out more than eight or 10%, it's probably not a bad idea. It's probably a bad idea to sell it. Yeah, because why you're take that cash and put it in the S and P, or where are you going to get? Like most people that have a lot of money would kill for a seven or eight percent return. Never, you know. So, like, what are you going to do with that money? Right. Yeah, That's and, and it, point, I mean, right? you guys are you guys are entrepreneurial people that have a unique perspective compared to 
the average dentist, but a lot of your audience is entrepreneurial like you as well. And I, I would mm -hmm. just say that typically people like you, um, Peter and Craig, you guys have less liquidity and you have more real estate and more practice equity than the, than the average person. You know, that's, that's typical. Uh, uh, an average person will have more liquidity, less practice equity, and they won't be investing in, they won't hire an associate or they, they won't feel comfortable adding a second location. Interesting. Uh, the tendency, the advice I would give to your audience and the people that are of your mindset is you can be better entrepreneurs. If you're a little more liquid, you can be more aggressive if you're a little more liquid. And, and if you get less liquid by paying off your real estate quickly and, and, and not having, let's call it like a, a liquid investment portfolio sitting in a, a group of ETFs making you 5% a year. It's just conservative. It's a stable place and you're making liquid, you're making predictable income off of that. You're able to be more aggressive than if you're down to your last few hundred thousand dollars and you're trying to make exit decisions or negotiate an acquisition or negotiate a contract with a new. Yeah. Assistant. It's, it's the dry powder approach. You always want dry powder. Like too many people don't, maintain liquidity at that level they should so anyway well reese man you dropped that's just so much there I, i'm gonna actually have to rewatch this again because i need um, i was looking at your charts and kind of going down my own mental rabbit holes in my head i'm gonna have to watch the uh the podcast again but man you're just awesome I'm, I'm so glad that uh that you're actually coming to the summit and we're getting to spend some time with you and kind of just keep um you know especially for our attendees and such to uh, for the summit attendees to have because you're, you're really just a great asset for the profession, man. And you're, and I love, since you're focused on just dentistry, you know, you've really, you've really developed a formula to help us out because, you know, we are, we are great at what we do, but sometimes not great at money management, sometimes not great at strategy to retire. So I, I appreciate and commend you for what you're doing for, for us as a whole. Well, you guys are yeah. doing great work too. I really appreciate having me on both you and Craig are uh, good examples of entrepreneurs that are really pushing the envelope and trying to manage your money the right way too. And I just respect it a lot and appreciate the message and the opportunity. So we'll look forward to yeah, seeing buddy. you guys at, uh, at summit. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see you in a couple, a uh, couple six, less than less than two months. Hey, but, Pete, um, quick, quick plug. How many spots we have left? I know we, uh, we have a ninth. I think we have less. Well, last week it was 19. So we only got about 19 spots left for the summit. That's awesome. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, it will, it will definitely sell out before. So don't, don't delay on that. If that's something that you want to want to go to for sure. Um, but anyway, Reese, thanks for taking the time again, pal, Craig, thanks for, uh, thanks for finding a quiet corner in, yeah, in Hollywood, Universal in Hollywood Studios, Hills. Uh, Los Angeles. Universal and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Reese. Thanks guys. Right, Take man. care guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast source. Check out BulletproofDentalPractice.com for video interviews and text BULLETPROOF to 345-345 to stay connected to us for special announcements. Have a great day.